Good morning, church. I hope you are all well. Um, I say good morning, but it's not really morning for me. Uh, you can probably tell by the strip of black through the curtain back there that it's not morning for me at all. Uh, this is a pre-recording, and uh, there's a couple reasons for that. I know Jim has been doing uh, live live sermons for you guys. I have a bunch of little ones usually running around my house, and they're usually loud. So this is the quiet time that I can find to um, do this sermon. Quiet is good for that. The other reason is that I live out in the sticks, and the internet is not good in the sticks. So I didn't want there to be any kind of, you know, lag or issue on Sunday. Um, if anything were to go wrong, I wanted this to come through um, clearly, and I wanted it to come through uh, completely. So that's why this is being pre-recorded. Um, yeah, but uh, all of that to say, I miss meeting with you. I really do. There's something about meeting together on Sunday mornings that uh, that is just special. And if nothing else, this COVID-19 situation has really helped me to realize what um, having a community and meeting with the community uh, is and why it's important for us. So I hope that can be a little bit of encouragement for you as you're going about uh, your week when we get back to meeting together, not to take it for granted. So today's sermon is going to come to you from uh, the book of John, chapter 2, and um, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. Hopefully you've all turned there. Um, if not, catch up. And if you can't catch up, just listen to the story. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. So, my goal for today's sermon is to go uh, verse by verse through this portion of scripture and kind of parse it all out, because there's a lot going on here, and um, this is a very pivotal portion of scripture when we're trying to understand 
who Jesus is and what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the lens that we should be uh, reading all scripture through is who is Jesus and what is it, uh, the kingdom of heaven like. So, verse 1. It starts out kind of giving us um, the context of where they are um, and when it is. So, um, the first thing it says is that on the third day. So, the third day, um, you know, it could refer to um, kind of the continuation back from chapter 1 and through to chapter 2. That's one, that's one possibility. But if you read it that way, it doesn't really make sense. If you were to flip back to chapter 1, you would find that the term the next day happens three times. So uh, that would make, if, the, if this is in sequence with chapter 1, that would make this the fourth day, not the third day. Um, so the third day likely corresponds to their day of the week, which, you know, like um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So um, the third day for them would have been Tuesday. This is the uh, interpretation to me that makes sense. Um, and to add a little bit of context, Katie and I were able to go on a trip to Israel um, this past year. And our guide was phenomenal. And um, we were passing by um, an area where there was a wedding feast going on. And he told us that um, in, uh, in Jewish culture, most weddings happen on a Tuesday. And the reason for that is um, it dates all the way back to Genesis and the creation story. So when God creates on the, the, third, uh, the third day, he blesses it twice. And you can flip back to Genesis for that. Um, uh, I believe that he creates the, well, you just flip back to Genesis for that. It's the third day. He blesses it twice. So um, in Hebrew uh, society, Jewish society, um, the the weddings would typically take place on a Tuesday and the wedding ceremony wasn't like, um, it wasn't like we have today. So the wedding would last, um, pretty much all week after, after the, uh, the third day, it would continue on, um, for as long as the, the store of wine and food and the party persisted. So that's a little bit about the day that it is. Um, they're clearly at a wedding, um, and it's in Cana, which is in the region of Galilee. So this is close to Jesus's home, but it's not his home. So he's an outsider at this party, but it's in the region where he would have grown up. Close to, you know, it's possible that he knew these people, but it's also possible that he's just a rabbi who got invited um, for hospitality reasons. We don't really know. The story isn't explicit. But for whatever reason, Jesus is invited, and so are his disciples, um, and his mother is there as well, which would lead us to believe that these are people he knows and people that are probably close relatives to him. So, uh, you get down to verse 3, and you find um, the catalyst for all the trouble in this story. So it says, when the wine was gone, and then Jesus' mother goes to him, and she says, they have no more wine. Notice that she doesn't say the wine is gone. She says they. They have no more wine. It's important. Um, why is it important? Because the provision of wine was um, a responsibility of the bridegroom. 
the bridegroom was expected to provide for the party. And so uh, when the wine ran out, um, and this we would, we would think would be still on the third day, which is the first day of the wedding. So it runs out premature. So that would be a huge shame in this culture. Um, when the wine was gone, the party probably stopped. Um, it would have uh, just, it would have been a huge cultural faux pas for, for the wine to give out that early in the party. So that's the problem that they're up against. And Mary, knowing uh, who Jesus is, you know, she heard the angel, she has seen what he can do, um, you know, she knows who he is. So she goes to him and she says, just very, you know, nonchalantly, they have no more wine. And Jesus's reaction to her is very interesting. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's uh, interesting because, um, well, let's just read it. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, this is a really interesting way to respond to Mary, um, not because of what he calls her, woman, um, that, that isn't um, like, he's not saying it in anger, there's nothing in, in that term that is derogatory or, you know, slanderous to her in any way. Um, in fact, when he's on the cross and he directs John to take care of her, he says, um, woman, behold your son. Uh, and then he tells John, um, behold your mother. Um, and it's, it creates this relationship between the two where, um, they take care of each other and he redefines family. Uh, you should remember that from, uh, Good Friday's reading, his word on the cross. Um, it's the same word, woman. So it has, it has no like, um, bitter connotation or anything like that. The reply is interesting because, um, what does his hour have to do with, um, with making wine? What is, what does that have to do? It doesn't seem to relate. Um, a lot of, uh, well, not a lot of people, but there, there, there is a way to interpret this as that Jesus is saying, it's not time yet for me to enter public ministry, which seems kind of weird to me, um, in the context of the story. Um, and here's, here's why. So, in John chapter 1, Jesus goes about and he calls all of his disciples to him. Um, so he's clearly ready to enter public ministry. And the second reason why this, this interpretation doesn't make a lot of sense to me, that Jesus is just saying, no, it's not time for me to enter public ministry, is this. He immediately after saying this, um, his mother just tells the servants to do, to do what he says, and then Jesus gives them orders, and he tells them what to do, and he performs the miracle. So if Jesus wasn't going to do this, like if he, if he was uh, saying that, oh, it's not time for me to start working miracles and showing who I am, he wouldn't have done it. Remember that Jesus is the best and most prolific movement leader of all time. He's very specific about the things that he does, and he... Um, you know, he's a genius. He, um, his movement, his, his, uh, his movement and his followers, uh, toppled Rome. They conquered an empire. Um, they've changed lives for 2000 years. Like, I don't know that it's really arguable that he's not the, like, he is the most influential human that has ever lived. I don't think that's arguable. 
So Jesus um, says, my hour has not yet come. And if it doesn't refer to, oh, I'm not ready to enter public ministry, then what is he saying? I would argue, and I've heard other people argue this as well, So I'm, and people I trust, um, people like Timothy Keller, um, authors that are very well respected, um, and yeah. So people, people uh, that I have uh, studied have um, put it across like this. When he says, my hour has not yet come, what he's referring to is his sacrifice on the cross. If you follow through the Gospel of John, you'll find um, the term my hour or the hour multiple times. It's in multiple places, and it always refers to Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. So that that period of time where he gives himself up, um, between that period of time where he gives himself up and when he's crucified, that's what my hour means. Um, And so what does that have to do with turning this uh, water to wine and creating more wine for the guests. Let's take a look. So, when Jesus thinks of wine, and when we think of wine now, one of the things that we should be thinking about is communion. When Jesus is in that upper room with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he pours the wine for them and he uh, refers to the wine as his blood. What what I would submit to you is that while Jesus is sitting at this wedding and he is um, being asked to um, create more wine, to get more wine for, for these people, I think what he is thinking about in his response to his mother is about, I'm sitting here at this wedding and you want me to provide wine for this wedding, but I'm thinking about my own wedding in the future and what I have to go through to provide wine for my guests. Remember that Jesus is referred to throughout the gospels as the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. So, Um, Jesus relates to the church as a husband relates to a bride. That's a relationship um, that is through the New Testament, and a lot of the writers carry it forward. So, when Jesus is is, uh, sitting there, and he's talking to his mother, and his mother asks, will you create wine for this wedding? What he is also thinking about is what do I have to do to create wine for my wedding? And that's not an easy thought for Jesus. You know, that's, um, it should be a thought that if we, if we were to identify with him and to, to empathize with him in this moment, I would think he would be sad, you know, and he's, um, at this wedding, He's a single man, he doesn't have a wife, and he's thinking forward like most single men would be if they were at a wedding to his own wedding. So his hour has not yet come, and he's thinking about what, um, what his hour will be like. So moving on. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So nearby um, stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. All right, 
So if you're not convinced about that, that last part about Jesus, um, thinking about his own, his uh, making his own wine, I would like to draw your attention to the vessel that he uses to create the new wine from the water. So he, um, has them fill up six stone jars, um, which would have been about 20 to 30 gallons. When Katie and I were in Israel, we got to see replicas of something that would have been like these jars. They were very big, and um, yeah, I mean, they, uh, 30, 30 gallons is a lot. That's a lot of wine, especially um, when you're talking about six times 20 to 30. So that's a lot of wine that he's, that he's creating. Um, but what are the jars used for? They're used for ceremonial washing. So before you went into the temple or before you did a lot of things, the Jews would wash themselves as a purification ritual, right? And so the symbolism here is very rich. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is making new wine, um, and remember that the wine symbolizes his blood. And uh, the vessel that he uses to make that is a vessel for purification. So um, it makes me think of the song, um, Nothing But the Blood, you know. Uh, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I think that that's what, uh, what, um, he's, what the symbolism is. I don't sing, so don't ever make me do that again. I'm sorry that I did that. Please forgive me. So, we have, we have the, the wine from water, which represents Jesus' um, blood, um, what he has to do to make it to his wedding, and the purification that his blood brings. So now we've moved, we're moving on. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars um, with water. So they filled them to the brim. That's, that's all the way. So if they held from 20 to 30, they're holding 30. So... Uh, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So who is the master of the banquet? The master of the banquet was kind of um, the party for hire. So, you know, this, this person, uh, their job was to make sure that the party was running smoothly and kept going. So they're the hired life of the party. Um, think Jake Tyson. You know, when Jake comes into a room, the party's there. You know, you can't, you can't not have fun when Jake's there. So that's the kind of person that the master of the banquet would have been. So they took, um, they took the, the wine to him. They, it was water, but the, that had been turned into wine. And they took it to him, um, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Uh, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So this is the money line, okay? So this is, this is for all, all the money. What did the, the bridegroom have to do with the wine? Nothing, right? He didn't, he didn't provide. He, uh, what he had provided, um, had run out. That's what, that's what, um, 
Mary says in the very first part, he says, she says, she says, they have no more wine. And it was, of course, the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine for his party. So, um, this bridegroom is coming over to, um, to the, the master of the banquet, and the master of the banquet is praising him, although the bridegroom has nothing to do with it. Now, think about it from the bridegroom's perspective. The bridegroom, um, it, once the once the party dies, say that the party has died on the first day, you know, and these these marriage parties would last, you know, throughout the rest of the week. So so how much of a and we discussed at the beginning that that would be a social faux pas. So if it's a social faux pas and it happens to him, him and his bride would be starting their married life in a state of disgrace. But instead, he's being praised for what Jesus has done. And uh, the bridegroom doesn't know. The bridegroom has no idea what happened. We don't even know. Maybe maybe the bridegroom was irresponsible, and he didn't even think that he didn't have enough wine. But maybe he was maybe he was um, not that wealthy, and he couldn't afford to buy it. But here he is, um, at least, not uh, not suffering the consequences for what um, his actions or um, lack thereof had had brought to him but reaping the benefits of uh, Jesus's miracle. It's, it's an incredibly gracious story, right? But also, um, look at what, look at what the, the master of ceremonies says. So he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Uh, but you have saved the best till now. If we view this story, this entire story, as um, more than just an account of uh, true happenings, if we think about this story, and it is, and I'm submitting to you that it is, this is a parable for what Jesus is like and what the kingdom of God is about. So Jesus brings, um, he brings new wine, but it gets better and better as time goes on, right? So the idea here... um, you know, I, I don't know if this is a saying that everyone has heard, but it is a saying. After two glasses of wine, they all taste the same. That's what this, this master of ceremonies is saying, is that, you know, you, you start the people off on good wine, and as the party progresses, you move to the cheaper stuff because they won't be able to tell. But instead, you started off with the worst stuff, and, it, or, and now it's... Um, been uh, getting better. And so Jesus makes wine that is better than what had been before. And as, uh, as Jesus goes on, everything gets better and better and better. I mean, this is, this is so amazing. Um, so now to the, to the final verse, and this is, um, this is a topic that I want to talk about for a minute. So we talked about um, earlier on that Jesus is, um, you know, the best movement leader that anyone could ever think of, right? Like um, 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived and died. We have three years of documented life, you know, in detail. We know a little bit about him before that, but we have three years of his documented ministry. And yet that three years of Jesus's life has influenced cultures 
for 2,000 years. It's brought empires to their knees, um, and it's changed, it's changed everything for the world, and it is continuing with no end in sight. So Jesus is starting, he chooses to start his movement off quietly. This is a little bit different than what I would do, right? Like, if I was in Jesus' shoes, if I was the Messiah, if I was um, Emmanuel, God with us, I would, um, for my opening act, I'd probably call down some, you know, fire from heaven. I might throw, you know, a lightning bolt at Caesar. You know, just play around. Just kind of, you know, just kind of just mess around and, uh, you know, take over. You know, like this whole 2,000 years in the waiting thing, um, that wouldn't be my style. And I'm guessing that for most of you out there, you um, can identify with that because we're not patient people. Um, when we uh, look for a Messiah, when we're looking towards the Savior, we oftentimes want to put on him the expectations of what we want. And that was that's, that's our fault, and that's also um, what you see all the Jews... Um, in the Gospels doing. They don't accept Jesus because he doesn't come the way that they want him to. So instead of throwing down fire or throwing a lightning bolt at Caesar, um, Jesus comes in and he does it quietly. He doesn't take credit for for any of this in the story. He just uh, works a miracle and um, the people that know that he did it, know. He doesn't say anything, they just know, right? And so Remember that Jesus is the the greatest um, movement. Uh, Jesus is the greatest movement man of all time, right? Like he's the he's the greatest leader of a movement ever. So, what we have to understand is that this isn't just you know like you know Jesus took the first opportunity and this um, you know he if he had waited he would have had a better opportunity to show what the kingdom of God is like. No, this is quintessential Jesus. This is what the kingdom of heaven is about. The kingdom of heaven is gracious. The kingdom of heaven is quiet. The kingdom of heaven is gentle. And he um, he does this, John, John specifically says in verse 11, he says, um, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was the first of the signs. So um, this is a little bit more than just a miracle. This is a miraculous sign. This is something that we're to look to and to understand that this is, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. If you want to know the quintessential truth of the kingdom of heaven, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is all about. This is an area where you can find it. Um, this isn't this isn't just you know Jesus's first attempt at coming coming and uh, telling people who he is. This is the inauguration of the kingdom. This is this is what he's all about. I think that um, you know oftentimes oftentimes like I said we can try to superimpose what we would do on what Jesus should do, and that's a mistake. Now, I have a couple notes here um, laid out. I got a little bit skittish of just reading from the notes because I usually just do an outline, but I had a couple a couple uh, closing thoughts that I just kind of, I'm going to read them to you, um, 
because that's easiest. So a few of the closing thoughts for this sermon. First, the bridegroom had nothing to do with the new wine. If left to his own devices, this discussion between him and the master of ceremonies would have gone very differently. Jesus steps in quietly and changes not only the water to wine, but the course of the party and the trajectory of his, the young man's life. The newlyweds won't start their name, uh, won't start their married life in disgrace. Jesus is gracious to them, and it is likely they never knew what he had done for them. Uh, my second thought is that uh, this wasn't just a miracle. This was a miraculous sign. Um, we just went over that. Okay, uh, this, is, this is the thought that I really wanted to get across to you guys. So one of the things that, that uh, I've experienced in my life when talking to people who, um, you know, trying, trying to influence people to either become Christians or talking to people who are, um, you know, leaving the faith, a lot of the time what they're talking about um, and the reason that they're talking about it is that they just don't believe that Jesus is fun. You know, when it comes down to it, people uh, reject Jesus and they walk away because they can't enjoy life um, that way, because there's rules and regulations and judgment and all of that. I want to just say today that if, if you're in that group of people who think that Jesus is, you know, a party crusher, that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus brings the party in this story. Um, he is literally Lord of the wine in this story. Um, he's w willing to provide joy at his own expense. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to reject Jesus, don't reject him for that. Um, that's not an intelligent reason to, uh, to reject Jesus. He's not against um, having fun. He's not against, um, yeah, he's not against that. He is, he is for your joy. Um, the final thought I have, and this will, this will close out, um, this story is, is much a parable to show us what the kingdom of heaven is like, as it is an eyewitness account of history. In the following week, um, please meditate on it. Uh, let it sink into your hearts and minds. Um, and just, just think about this throughout the week. We serve a generous and gracious God. He isn't just another prophet. He isn't just another guru. He's the Messiah, and he's Emmanuel. He's God with us, and he's, he's here uh, to bring us joy. That's what this sermon is about.